Hello, and welcome to the official companion podcast for the HBO documentary Tales of the Grim Sleeper. My name is Hugo Lindgren, and joining me in our New York studio is the director of the documentary, Nick Broomfield. Welcome. Hi. Tales of the Grim Sleeper premieres April 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on HBO and HBO Now. In 2010, Lonnie Franklin was arrested and charged with murdering 10 women in South Los Angeles. The police claimed that with Franklin's arrest, they had finally found the serial killer known as the Grim Sleeper after a 25-year search. Lonnie Franklin and his family were well-liked, and those close to them were shocked by the accusations. For his documentary, Tales of the Grim Sleeper, director Nick Broomfield planted himself in the place where these gruesome murders happened, South Los Angeles, a predominantly black neighborhood that had been crippled by the crack epidemic throughout the 1980s. From the unprecedented testimonials contained in the film, we learned that it wasn't just 10 women that Lonnie Franklin killed, but over 100 women, making Franklin one of the deadliest serial killers in history. Nick, I want to start by just sort of talking about how you first heard about The Grim Sleeper and kind of came to see this as a good subject to make a documentary about. Well, I've lived in Los Angeles one way or another for a long time. And when I first came, there was a lot more connection with South Central. In fact, my ex-partner's mother had set up a medical center in South Central, which then under the Reagan years, the federal funding got cut off and it closed down. And basically, I became aware that it was like living in two cities. No white person ever went to South Central, really, unless they got lost. And then the crack epidemic came in. It got even more cut off. And when I read about these murders, I thought, well, it could only have happened in South Central. If this happened in Santa Monica, where I live, the whole place would be closed down after three days, and they would fly in extra teams, FBI and so on, until they got the person responsible. So what was the story here? How was it possible this guy for 25 years could kill so many people and no questions really were being asked. So it was his arrest in 2010 that sort of piqued your interest? It had become news for a couple of years before that as they were trying to figure it all out. Yeah, I was aware of it from about 2008. 2010 was the arrest. And then there had been also a series of amazing articles by a journalist called Christine Pelisek in the LA Weekly. It was otherwise not really reported very much in the LA Times and so on, but the LA Weekly and Christine did some amazing articles, which I read. So how does that work as a documentary maker? You go into the area, you're just checking it out, not sure you're going to make it yet, just know that you're interested. What was one of the first things that started to say, oh, this is something I can make a movie about? There's enough material here. I have enough insight into what's going on. Well, I think if you feel that there's a great story there, a story that intrigues you, and there are enough layers to it. I mean, there was the police layer. There was who Lonnie Franklin is. There was how did he live in this neighborhood? And nobody seemed to know anything. There was all these police photographs of the victims. You know, there were so many of them. It was like finding out more about them and where some of them might still be alive. Police didn't know how many were alive. So there were a lot of angles to go on. And Lonnie Franklin is, by the standards of the neighborhood anyway, a pretty successful guy. But his means of income are a little hard to hard to determine. Well, Lonnie was kind of the local fence. You know, if you needed a washing machine, Lonnie would get it for you. If you needed a bit for your car, Lonnie would get it. You know, as one person says, don't ask any questions, but Lonnie will get it for you. It's an interesting kind of position that so someone who's a kind of central figure in the community, this is not the regular sort of MO of a serial killer. He's a very well-known guy in the neighborhood and someone who a lot of people knew pretty well. He was really like, you know, as one person said, somewhere in your conversation, Lonnie would bring in something perverted. That's just the guy he is. And people kind of loved Lonnie for that. 
apparently he had three telephones. He had a telephone for his crackheads, telephone for his family, and telephone for work. That was just Lonnie. It's interesting that you go in there, you talk to three of his friends, the guys live on his block, and they're hanging out, and they're like all expressing total shock. They never saw it. Lonnie, what a great guy. And then sort of as the movie goes on, a couple days later, you're talking to them separately, and they all start to kind of confide there. I remember that gun he was waving around that he kept in his top pocket. Yeah, it was all that kind of stuff. And I remember these handcuffs falling out of the back of his car. And I think they started thinking about their involvement. One of the things is when you make a film, people become a lot more introspective. I think they were horrified that they were so close to all these murders. They, I think, were unaware of the murder. I think they got really worried. So they started saying things and coming forward. And they were all great storytellers. Well, it's interesting. There was obviously some hostility towards you, certainly in the early parts, but then it really kind of opens up a bit. Pack of wood, get out of here. That guy's best friend by the halfway through the movie. You know, they just really didn't like, well, it was understandable, two white guys appearing in a Mercedes. It was kind of like, you know, are you Johns or are you the FBI? Or So it took a while. And, and actually, we had brought Tiffany Haddish, who was a local comedian. She came with us and she was liked and respected in the neighborhood. So she would like, hey, guys, take it easy, you right. know, when they were peckerwooding me a lot and right. all the rest of it. And we want to cap your ass. There was a lot of that kind of stuff going on, which actually terrified my first cameraman so much that he left. After three days of, I'll cap your ass. And all, I said, don't take any notes. It's probably it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's probably, yeah, it's probably <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. Well, I want to talk about some of the great characters, some of the other characters, but I want to focus on Lonnie first. Yeah. Even after all we find out about him, he remains a very kind of mysterious guy. Like, why is he doing this? What's at the root of it? And even more fundamentally, like, what made Lonnie such a successful guy with this big problem or this big sort of pathology, really? Well, I think a lot of these guys, and this is more hearsay than knowing for sure, is that they see themselves as cleaning up the streets. I think Lonnie really sees himself as a center of the community, a community guy. As one of the guys says, you know, if there was a crack house, Lonnie would come and close it down. So I think he was very much part of the neighborhood. People depended on him. Some people regarded him as the kind of good Samaritan in the neighborhood. If you needed to borrow some money, Lonnie would lend it to you, that kind of thing. As one of his friends said, he hated crackheads. That was that sort of weird thing that one of his friends said, if you're a crackhead and you get in his car, you ain't coming out alive. You know, it was sort of that attitude. You know, he was a twisted character, but you have to remember that this is an area where there's a crack epidemic and people were used to seeing strange things going on. Now, the big theme of the movie, obviously, the police don't care. There's this horrible term that you bring up called NHI, no humans involved. No human involved is the thing that cops would phone in, you know, when they're on the radio, say NHI here. And what that meant was don't bother with forensics. It's an NHI, no human involved. It's It's just a a prostitute, a crackhead. A a homeless person, a down and out, you know, just push it through. So with a lot of these cases, the evidence wasn't really even kept properly. They were just a John Doe or a Jane Doe. They didn't really bother finding out anything about them. And I think the police in that area just didn't see themselves as serving that area to solve crimes. But in the first murder, right, I I believe it's the first one, they get the anonymous phone call, which is believed to be Lonnie himself phoning in the the discovery of the dead body. 
What's your view of that? What was Lonnie doing calling in a killing that he did himself? Well, I think there were two things that are really significant about that. One was that the cops sat on that call for 20 years and didn't release it publicly. And I think, why sit on it for 20 years? I mean, somebody in the public might have recognized his voice. That was part of the police just withholding a lot of evidence. I mean, they also knew that there was a serial killer from 1987 and didn't announce it for another 20 years. And that was after the LA Weekly had actually published an article giving that news. But also, I think like many serial killers, Lonnie was sort of playing a game. He gave the evidence of that. And then with other victims, there would be other clues. There were certainly signature things that he did. A lot of the people were killed in the passenger seat of the car. So they were shot through the heart at a particular angle. So there were a lot of things in common with a lot of these murders. You've made a previous film about a serial killer. Are serial killers a particular interest point of view? Is that sort of a coincidence that you've done too? What's the relationship between the, the previous film, which was on a female serial killer, one of the only ones? Ali Munoz, yeah. yeah. What's the relationship in terms of your interest between these well, two Well, they're cases? completely different films. I mean, I think we as a public are fascinated by serial killers. Eileen's story of a woman who had a sort of tragic life, a life of sort of abuse and abandonment, and a lot of terrible choices that she made. A very personal film about her. You know, I knew her over 14 years. We stayed in touch. So I actually made the sort of final film before she was executed and did her last interview. So that was a very personal film. This film is really much more a portrait of a community that has been neglected. It's really part of the whole thing we're reading about every day in the newspapers, which is what's happened in Ferguson, what happened in Baltimore when this guy was bundled up like a pretzel. And it's about a society or a group of people that have been neglected by the police and the police don't care. And it's about a bigger problem. It's about a problem that I think America is just starting to deal with. Well, there's a dilemma in the neighborhood and is expressed in the movie, which is the community doesn't trust the police, doesn't feel like calling 911 is necessarily a good idea, as one of the activists says, tells her own son, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. And then they need the police to protect them from, from all kinds of other problems. So there's this kind of, they need them, but they don't trust them. And that seems to speak to some of the other events that are happening around the country right now, which is that the relationship is completely broken between law enforcement and between the Yeah, because I think the police see themselves as protecting and serving the rest of Los Angeles from South Central. (laughs) So it's kind of like they they might hand out some speeding tickets there or... Well, you got a ticket, right? Yeah, I got a ticket. (laughs) They've had enough of us, you know, whizzing around. So, yes, they hand out some speeding tickets and minor infractions to raise some money. They kind of leave the gangs kind of running South Central, really, and let people just sort of get on with it themselves. Now, there is one case where there's a shooting while you're there. But other than that, one of the things, you don't see a lot of gang stuff in your movie. There isn't a lot of gang stuff, though. I mean, there's a bit of gang stuff, but so many people are in prison. You don't see many young people. On yeah, the streets. They're definitely not in the South movie very no, much. No, because they're, they're all locked up. You do not see young black males wandering around South Central because most of them are in prison. And they're being picked up on some minor 
drug infraction and given a felony conviction for possessing a small amount of crack, for example. And that's part of a national problem too. One of the functions of the film is to enter into that debate about the policing of black neighborhoods, the guidelines that police need to be given, the responsibility of the police in those neighborhoods, and also a wider justice system such as the drug laws that have so penalized a particular part of our society, you know. I want to talk about two characters that are play kind of very interesting roles in the film. The first one is Pam, who I'll let you describe her, but she becomes sort of your tour guide. Tell me about who she is and your relationship with her. Well, Pam was somebody that we met completely by accident a few days into the filming. And she and my son, who shot the film, Barney, became completely addicted to playing dice. And Pam would come around and... You know, there was a, ah, you owe me more money, and, you know. They play dice, like, in the car as you drive no, around? No, they were, you know, we had a sort of production office we called Rather Grandly, which was more like a sort of bunker in Lamert Park. People would drop around, and, you know, we'd go out and have lunch and stuff together. So Pam would come around and play dice, and they were always squabbling about who owed who more. One. And then she would start some names to come out with us in the car. And, of course, you know, Pam has that sort of wonderful motor mouth kind of, you know, you know, these are my friends from England and, you know, we're doing, the, you know, all this kind of stuff. So blunt, too. I mean, the way she's talking to the prostitutes on the street is just... Yeah, because she knew half of them. Yeah. Yeah, she would just say, hey, the, you know, you got you got no drawers on and... She had standards even for the sort of streetwalkers, like, yeah. you know, there's things you could do and then things... She's just... asshole naked to the world. I mean, that was one of her... <laughs> <laughs> she was incredulous, you know, even though... Pam had been on the streets for 40 years. She was horrified. So I'm guessing Pam is a friend for life. I think Pam is a friend for life. And we had lots of arguments. She hated my driving. She thought I was the world's worst driver. But Pam's driving, I assure you, is terrifying. But she sort of introduced us to the neighborhood and got a lot of the people that she'd worked alongside on the streets for like 30, 40 years to take part in the film. So she was like our guardian angel in a sense. Now, the other character is Lonnie's son, Chris, Mm. who was obviously a tough interview to get. They were very close, the father and son. He had a lot of reasons to be scared or suspicious of you in any case. It's obviously a very fraught situation. it, It is kind of intruding. Well, again, it was Pam who arranged that interview. She kind of broke at it and was like, Chris, these guys want to talk to you and they're going to listen to you. And I think after weeks and weeks and weeks of that, he finally called. But on the initial interview, he was on so much medication that we really couldn't get through to him. And we were the first people that he talked to other than professional psychiatrists who had been seeing for the four years after his father got arrested. I mean, Chris felt terrible that it was his DNA that actually got his father arrested. Right. And he'd be disowned by a lot of his family who regarded him as a snitch. I don't think they really understood that this was something that was beyond his control. As one of Lonnie's great friends says, you know, Lonnie was a titty sucker. I guess they found saliva on the breast of the victims. And when his son was arrested for possession of a firearm and they took his DNA, this computer bank that goes 24 hours a day matched his DNA up with some of the victims. Chris was obviously too young to have done the murders. 
And so they followed Lonnie to a pizza parlor, got a bit of pizza, and the saliva on the pizza was an absolute match to the DNA on the victims, the saliva on the victims. Just tell me what it's like to interview someone like Chris, to approach him for the first time. Obviously, you were doing this you know, major movie. You'd been in the neighborhood a lot. Of all the people that you're talking to, this is got to be, I don't know, scary might not be the right word, but what is the right word? Well, it was kind of like the voodoo house in the neighborhood. Kids did not go to that house. Also, you didn't go to the house because there were two Rottweilers that would just pull you to pieces before you even got to ring the front doorbell. I was always kind of amused and surprised that we were as intimidated as everybody else. We were almost reluctant to film it. There had been all these stories about Chris beating up Richard and so on. So as soon as we met him, you realize that he's more of a victim than anybody else. I mean, he loved his father. His father, as he says, is my best friend. He was somebody who I think had a complete breakdown when his whole world imploded when Lonnie was arrested. He was terrified that he might have the same kind of genetic thing that would make him go crazy, too, in the way his father had. Actually, after the first interview, he called us up and said, I'd like to talk to you again. And I've talked to him a lot since then. Obviously, he had a lot to say, but I think was also very protective of his father. And what about Lonnie's wife? She's not in the movie, obviously. She's referred to only a little bit. Well, it's, it's interesting because they would refer to her as Ms. Franklin. Right. And she was very respected in the neighborhood. Sort of, She worked in the school. It worked in the school in the superintendent's office. She went to the church at the bottom of the street every Sunday, was super religious. And people in the neighborhood were just like, a number of them approached her on our behalf to talk to us. But she didn't clearly didn't want to talk. And people in the neighborhood were like, you've got to leave her alone. Right. And, and I think when people in the neighborhood are saying that, and you don't want to alienate everyone in the neighborhood, sure. you just do what they tell you to. Is she looking after Chris, as far as you know? No. They've actually sold the house. I think Chris had received so many death threats from families of victims that he's actually moved to another city and trying to start a new life. So it's a lot of hardship and difficulty in that family. Yeah, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, because they're a big part of the movie. We haven't touched on them at all, but the sort of activist group that really worked to bring attention to this. Oh, the Black Coalition fighting against serial murders. Obviously, they're a big part of the movie, and they're a big part of the bringing attention to these murders. And First of all, when did they get involved with the case? Were they one of the forces that sort of really got the police involved in the first place in terms of the saliva and the eventual arrest of Lonnie and all that? Was that due to their pressure? Yeah, they were these amazing people. And Margaret Prescott, Nana Gianfi, unpaid, but activists for 25 years worked to get attention to these women who had disappeared. He's like, 200 women they worked out had disappeared over a 25-year period, and nobody was dealing with it. And they were the people who went down to Parker Center, the LAPD headquarters, protesting, having banners, trying to contact the press. They had very little success. You know, the LA Times didn't even want to report it. It was black crime, didn't sell newspapers, so what kind of attitude. And they persisted, they carried on, they tried to embarrass the LAPD, you know, at the press conference. That's 2010 when he's arrested. You have the mayor there, 
It's a very weird little image of Jerry Brown sort of looming in the background there, not really doing yeah. anything except trying to get his picture in the newspaper well, yeah. or something. They were all celebrating. And then the activists yeah. take over and embarrass them incredibly. They felt that the police were racist when Margaret Prescott had actually gone down to Parker Center and talked to the lieutenant in charge. He had actually said, but these are just black prostitutes. And she was wondering, what do you mean these are just black prostitutes? I mean, she was outraged, you know, as you can see in the film. And then when they were sort of celebrating this great detective work, which of course was ridiculous because he was caught by a computer, at this enormous press conference, she actually was so annoyed that she grabbed hold of the microphone and said, hey, now, this isn't really what happened. This has been going on for 25 years. What do you mean this is not a great day? This is a day of how is it possible this could have taken so long? And I think that she's an example of these sort of heroines that I met when I was making this film, which actually made the making of the film so wonderful in a way. You know, these incredible human beings who devoted so much of their lives in a completely unpaid way to actually try and make Not just unpaid, better. but unheralded. I mean, just truly, yeah. like, against... It's incredible. So what is the current... Lonnie's obviously in jail. He's not yet been convicted, or he has been convicted? Uh, he is still in jail, and the trial, I think, is at the end of June. You go into that a little bit. His attorney is just sort of trying to run out the clock, but... Well, they're... we haven't got to the end of June, so I'd hate to say it's definitely going to happen. Then He's probably got some more tricks up his sleeve. Now, let's imagine you had gotten an interview with Lonnie himself. What would you want to ask him about? Well, at this stage, I think it's really how does Lonnie see himself? I think that's what's so fascinating is, as Christopher's talking about his father, said he sees himself as just being in there for stealing cars or something. Lonnie's in complete denial from what I understand. He says he's completely innocent. It's somebody else's DNA. There's been a mistake he saw the film and was furious and insulted with what his friend said and so on. So I think he's cocooned himself in a way. And I think that would be the most interesting thing to talk to him about. What did you discover that was quite a bit different than you expected about the community or about the nature of serial killers? What did the experience of making the movie sort of teach you? When I was about to do the film, a lot of people were don't go down to South Central unless you've got backup. You know, what kind of backup are you taking? Like, you know, I was going to go in with a tank or something. Just your friend said that? Yeah. And, of course, when you get down there, they're amazing people. They have a story they want to tell. I regard many of them as dear friends. And that's a kind of most obvious revelation, I think, which is South Central is full of amazing people who need to be given a, a better chance than they're getting. There's one quote, actually, that I want to read and get your reaction. It's sort of towards the end of the movie. It's very ominous. Just because they have Lonnie doesn't mean this is over. There's another motherfucker out there as sick as he is. Are there other serial killers operating in places like South Central? I think it also refers to the, this whole story could happen all over again because nothing has changed. Police policy has not changed. The police attitude to South Central Los Angeles has not changed. That's what needs to be looked at. There need to be some very strict guidelines given out about what the police force is expected to do. Now, as for you personally, the kind of documentaries you make are these immersive projects where you get to know these people very well. You obviously maintain relationships with them long past the completion of the project. 
How many how many documentaries have you made? Twenty almost in your Probably career. Probably thirty. So you have a quite a community of people. Who yeah, <laughs> I have I have some great friends who you know you would never normally meet from like great drill sergeants to people like Margaret Prescott, Nana, and Pam. A great list of people. You know, I w- I was very close to Eileen for years and years and years too. So I think that's one of the pleasures of making documentaries is that you learn about the world and you get many, many friends in different parts of the world, different places. But then in a sense, you also have to leave them behind because you do go on to the next project. Well, you you do, but I think you stay in touch. I mean, if you want to stay in touch in this day and age, it's very easy to stay in touch with lots of people. And I think some people just touch you and there's a connection. You keep it up if you want to. Is there a a kind of desired outcome of what you want people to to do after seeing this or to feel? Or Well, I think as a documentary filmmaker, you obviously are introducing an audience to a world that they probably don't have any experience of and are not likely to come into contact with it. In this case, I hope I'm introducing them to a group of very kind of dignified, articulate people that they wouldn't have otherwise met who they will look at differently, probably, or at least give them a break. The relationship between white Los Angeles and sort of South Central and other minority areas, is, as you were saying earlier, is sort of less connected than ever, maybe even less connected than in 1991 with the Rodney King riots. I think what's happened in Los Angeles is very much goes back to slavery, which is people came from the South and they were segregated. They had to live in certain parts of Los Angeles until the mid-50s. And what's really happened from that point on is that most, the economics have been such that most people have been unable to get jobs and they're still stuck in the same areas. And the kind of apartheid system that developed up to the mid-50s is still in place and it hasn't shifted, it hasn't moved on. And there hasn't been any real attempt to put in the kind of money or the kind of social programs that will help anybody to move this on. That's one of the real big problems. And also the fact that there has been a crack epidemic there. It's been treated as an individual problem. Oh, you've got a crack rather than a community problem. I mean, the overall crime rates in Los Angeles have gone down rather significantly mm. over the last few years. Is That's got to be felt somewhat in South Central as well. I mean, up from the mid-90s, it, it was a lot worse. But you're suggesting that the situation really isn't any different. It's just less killings? or Well, if you look at the statistics of South Central, there's massive unemployment. There's still a lot of drug addiction. The obesity rates... If you look at the number of high school graduates, people who get into college, it's completely different from an area 10 miles away, which is a white area. So there's a complete lack of opportunity, I think. The wider problem, of course, is a political one, which is there is very little political representation for this group of people. And obviously, if they had proper political clout, I think most of this would go away. You know, black politicians who get elected from those areas very quickly forget that they grew up in South Central. And that's because there isn't really a political infrastructure raising money to support those kinds of politicians. So they then become supported actually probably by the police federation or the teachers union. Their loyalties are no longer to South Central Los Angeles. And that's a national problem too, I think. 
You mentioned Lonnie having seen the movie and having a negative reaction to how he was portrayed mm. in it. How about some of the other people? How about Pam or Chris? How did you show them the movie and how was their reactions? Well, there was an enormous screening at the Egyptian cinema in Los Angeles, which was pretty amazing because the LAPD were there as well as people from the community. The LAPD was there to see the movie? They were there. The whole task force, the DA was there, the whole caboodle were there, and it's very big cinema. And the people from South Central, like Anitria, Washington, look at movies in an amazing way, which is they sort of get into this banter. They sort of shout out, and then other people in the audience shout out. I remember Anitria Washington, who's the sole surviving victim, who you know, was shot through the chest and miraculously survived. At a certain point, the friend says, because Lonnie was a titty sucker. And she just exploded at that point and said, yeah, you know what the fuck do you think he was doing this kind of thing and then someone else would scream out from the audience so the Q&A at the end of it I really didn't have a chance to say a thing which was great <laughs> and Nitria came down took over and other victims you know who narrowly survived came over and took the, the microphone and it was a really a sort of community event it was the greatest screening with the film LAPD said very little Though they did try and recruit Pam sort of at the end of it. Recruiter for what? Well, I think they, they were kind of like, you know, we'll deal with your felony convictions, try and get them erased if you help us. And she was like, <laughs> no way. You think, I'm, you think I'm crazy? <laughs> and did you hear anything else from the police? I mean, it's a pretty searing indictment of the well, LAPD, I think the movie. I think there's a lot of interest in getting some kind of an inquiry as to how this happened. I know that that's obviously what the Black Coalition want. I think the police have got a lot of questions to answer. And that's it for this official companion podcast for the HBO documentary Tales of the Grim Sleeper. Thank you to director Nick Broomfield. Pleasure. The documentary premieres April 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on HBO and HBO Now. I'm Hugo Lindgren. Thanks for joining us. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.